Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Ping. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? Doing great. Yes, we are talking to Ong Ping Sin, general partner of Monks Hill Ventures. And Ping, I know you have a very illustrious career with starting a couple of interesting startups and now you are in the venture capital business. But to sort of get a sense of your background, how did you get started in technology? Let's see. Boy, that goes back way back when in actually Monks Hill Secondary School. I had a teacher there was building a computer, believe it or not. Uh, there was a lab where he was working in. And he let a few of us kids uh, play with the machine. So I, I started to realize the power of computers in secondary school and haven't looked back. And so you actually built a computer and subsequently you end up doing computer science? Yes, double E first and then computer science in grad school. And then you stay in the US? Right? Yeah, I stayed in the US after that. And so in the journey where you became an entrepreneur, you built three interesting companies. I mean, you co-founded and you also built it. One was Match.com, Interwoven and Accentuate. So kind mm-hmm. of what are the interesting lessons and reflections that you have on these companies that you have built as an entrepreneur? Probably the most interesting and not unexpected observation is it's all about people. It's surprisingly technology companies is all about people, but maybe not surprisingly. All my best successes, all my worst failures is because I, I choose the right people or the wrong people. And sometimes right or wrong is, is not a sort of moral judgment is people that are competent versus people are not. That's probably the biggest lesson. And and it keeps playing out in my VC life, right? If I choose the wrong person to invest in, you know, chances are I lose my money. And if if I pick the right founders, you know, we end up being all very happy. In all these companies that you have built, how important is, uh, for example, the success and failure? Do you see them as a journey? And how conscious do you spend your time into into managing people. Okay, uh, first first question about success failure first because that's one of the other perspectives that I've developed. Success and failure are both transient, meaning at some point in your career life, the world might look at you and go, wow, he's very successful. And some other points, they might look at you and go, wow, what a failure. The truth is it's all comes and goes and and it, it can come down to a micro level where you take a week or even a day and some parts of the day is very nice, some part of the day very ugly, some parts of the week is very nice, you know, you, you close a deal, you know, um, you sign a, a big contract and then some parts of the week somebody quit on you and it's terrible, Other you lost a deal, whatever, right? It's a series of success and failures. And what you're trying to do in startups is push the successes, the positive stuff on the upwards and try to minimize the negative stuff but it, it all happens together right and if you manage to do if you manage to have enough successes over failures over a longer period of time then you might be able to go public in which case people go wow that's successful 
but you know how many companies that have gone public have failed? You know, how many of the Fortune 500 companies from 20, 40 years ago are no longer there? I've gotten kind of philosophical on that point, and I think it helps for entrepreneurs to actually look at it from that point of view so that they don't take every negative thing that happens as a total failure. In the area of management, you also think that it's also very important to how you spend your time, right? So when you are an entrepreneur, how do you manage your time and how do you manage your own psychology such that you can stay positive to make the startup work? This is probably one of the toughest challenges I have personally because I, I'm an engineer by personality, not just by training, right? Meaning, I look out for all the things that can go wrong. When you do that, you tend to have a you know, very negative kind of view of life because going wrong is negative. Right? Although, personally, I, I look at this stuff as sort of analytical as opposed to emotional. It doesn't always come across that way. Right? When, you, when I talk to my executives, my engineers about what can go wrong, uh, that could be a feeling that you know, I'm, I'm kind of very negative person. I've over the years sort of trying to work against that to be more conscious of how I project my mental state or how mental state I project as opposed to uh, pe- people might look at me and think I'm in a bad mood or negative, but it could be I've been just thinking. So I need to be conscious as a leader. You need to be conscious about the energies you project, even though what you is perceived might not be what you are your actual state is, right? So that that's why it's important to be conscious of that and the sort of a more positive way of looking at things and pushing efforts and projects is what I've, I guess I've learned slightly over time, but, but my personality is still more engineering than anything, right? So I look for things that go wrong. After building these three companies and then you decided to become a venture capitalist. Mm-hmm. So what is the motivation behind that search then? The search, um, the switch, um, sorry, the switch. Okay, it was almost coincidental. I, I was running a fund for uh, the IDA in Singapore, so I got some experience running a VC fund from that. Uh, that was sort of public service, national service. And then after I sold my last company, Accentuate to IBM, I just happened to visit a whole bunch of relatives in Fujian, and I realized, you know, I that's where I'm from. My, or at least my father. I know very little about the culture. Heck, I, I didn't. I, I I didn't even speak much Mandarin, if any. So I decided to move to China, mm-hmm. just to get integrated into that society, the culture. So I understand what's going on, the language. And at that point, when I was sort of going back and forth from Beijing and Singapore, one of my friends, uh, Richard Lim, said, "Hey, Payne, why don't you come?" join us as a venture partner. He, he He's one of the founders of GSR Ventures, uh, which is, I think, one of the more successful venture funds in China. So I, I did because I thought that was a great way to get integrated, if you will, if you start doing business. It was tough because my Mandarin is basically nowhere, but I figured out that number one is an interesting business. Number two, because of my tech background, uh, my startup background, people, entrepreneurs could empathize with me even though there was a, somewhat of a language barrier. And I actually had fun sort of coaching good entrepreneurs through you know hard times and all that. So I realized it, it, it's actually a lot more 
of an interesting, engaging business than I thought it would be prior to actually practicing one uh, as one as a VC full time. When I came back to Singapore and Southeast Asia in 2013 or so, me and my partner Kwai decided, hey, you know, it's probably time that Southeast Asia had some Series A post-seed funds and we decided to start one and uh, get going on it. Mostly because my experience in China taught me that I could actually really find this fulfilling. Basically, you have the Silicon Valley experience. You also have the experience in China. What are the kind of things you learned about the Chinese market? And how is it actually different from the US where you build your companies? Are there uh, differences in founder culture, the way how companies work? Yeah, quite a bit and not a lot. (laughs) So quite a bit in scale, right? I didn't quite really appreciate scale in the U.S. The U.S. has about 300 million people. China has about 1.2, Yeah, so it's a difference of four times. And that difference is huge if you think about businesses and if you think about scalability. So that, that's one thing. And, and as a result of that scale, China has a lot more entrepreneurs. Pro- produces four times more entrepreneurs statistically as the U.S. Except you, the U.S., of course, imports a lot. Right? So, so the actual difference might not be four times, it might be two times. And it doesn't go to talk about quality because the experience level in China, at least when I was there, was a, a lot less, right? The Chinese eco, tech ecosystem was around for maybe about 5-10 years when I got there. The Silicon Valley had been around for 40-50 years already. So big differences in experience levels. But if you take the top 0.1% of the top 0.1% of the, the population in, in China, you still get a lot of very, very capable, smart driven people just like in the valley. So not surprisingly, the value creation in China is almost just as interesting as in the US just because of the scale of both the the talent pool and the market size itself. How about founder cultures? Are they very similar in terms of the thing? And also because in the only in the last one, two years, we have the BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. So yeah. there is now a new generation of actually what I call tech middle management that's able to go into creating these new startups in China. Do you yeah. see that that kind of things change? Well, the BATs have been around for, I would say, 15, 10, 10 years already, spinning out mm. companies. Uh, people that spin out companies. So the effect has been there for quite a while already. The founder culture that's different, so a lot of it is very similar. If you look at the top entrepreneurs like Lei Chun, for example, and you compare them with the top entrepreneurs in the Valley, very, very similar demeanor, you know, very cool, very gracious, eloquent, just general good executive. So so at the very, very top, it's very similar. But then there is this push culture that is a lot more aggressive in China because competition, I think because of sheer numbers of people, competition is a lot more aggressive. So the the push culture is a lot more aggressive. There's less much less consideration in a startup, right? Not not in bigger companies, but in a startup. Less less consideration for your family, for example, you know. If things need to get done, you're there. You've got to do it, right? It's not to say this is not the case in, in the Valley too, but it is a bit more extreme in, in, in my experience in China. I, I think 
that that level of intensity of competition in, in China just drives a lot of things, including the the push culture. The in the U.S. might be considered ungentlemanly kind of competitive tactics. In China, is like the norm. You know, those are maybe the differences. That comes to the most interesting part is Monk's Hill Ventures, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you told a story that you set it up with Guo Yi after his stint as well in the Infocom Investments under the Infocom Authority of Singapore, right? The Development Authority of Singapore. Yeah. So why do you decide the name on Monk's Hill Ventures? Yeah, I think I hinted to it. I went to Monk's Hill Secondary School. Koi also went there for his German classes when he was in secondary school as well. So both of us had has attended the school. There's one point in my, I think the main reason, one of the main reasons is at one point in my career, I came back to Singapore and I was giving talks to basically kids and students basically. And I mentioned, you know, the fact that I was from Rangsil Secondary School. A friend of mine reminded me of that I should, always remember to say that when I'm talking to kids because there's this thing in Singapore that you have to be you know, from the best schools to be successful in life. This was a good reminder to people that you know, what you do after school is, is just as important. <laughs> and since they closed the school down, I thought this would be a good way to just keep that, oh. that notion forward. I see. Okay, so in Monk's Hill Ventures, you're focused now on Southeast Asia. Do you have an investment thesis for Monk's Hill Ventures? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty simple. At mm. uh, this level of GDP per capita that the larger ASEAN economies are at, the internet, the adoption of internet technologies start, start to become very significant as a part of the economy. Mm. Right? And, they're, they're not ultra significant yet, like in China. But I actually, you could argue, right? Because if you look at the social media, if you look at e-commerce, these things are starting to crank up very significantly. So China crank, started cranking up probably a bit lower, around 2000 something, 3000. Yeah, 2001, yeah. 2002. Well, no, I, I meant GDP per capita. Oh, okay. So ASEAN, the, the big uh, economies are probably around 3000. Uh, GDP per capita, if you take Thailand, uh, Philippines, Indonesia, for example. So the you, you would expect the adoption of the internet technologies to start cranking up, right? And and you would expect internet to start affecting almost every part of, of life, just as it's doing in China, US, Europe. When this happens, this adoption starts happening, a huge amount of the old, the old traditional businesses don't seem to adapt and new businesses get created to take advantage of the adoption. And those new businesses ultimately become large, pretty significant businesses over time. And our thesis is we are, our timing is reasonably good to be able to catch a whole bunch of these guys, hmm. to be able to invest in a whole bunch of these guys. In the whole total of the population of the whole Southeast Asia is almost the same size as a US market in totality, right? It's about three in total, two seven. Yeah, but it's just like you know, it's all over the place. So mm. you, it, it's hard to lump it all together. So wouldn't it be difficult because they are all fragmented in different countries, also with different languages and different cultures in terms yeah. of investment? So uh, exactly what I was going to. The way I would recommend a entrepreneur look at the Southeast Asia market is one of two ways. You either look at it as the three large economies, which is Thailand, Philippines, and Indonesia together is about 500 million people. 
and huge amounts of GDP and growth, GDP growth. So if you have a more you know, emerging market kind of product, that's the way you look at it. If you have a more developed economy kind of product, then it's uh, probably five to ten of the biggest cities in Southeast Asia. That's how you look at your market. That will give you somewhere between an England and a Germany to go after. Not not a US, but you know there are multiple multiple billion dollar companies in in both England and Germany. Big enough market to to mm. go look go after. So typically for Mangse Ventures, how much? What's the range of capital do you invest in each company in the Series A? Uh, we we do about two to five. There's no fixed formula. We do the two or two to five million first investment before the follow through. So I always like to ask this. So what are the kind of attributes you look in a founder before you invest in them? Basically, easy way to think about it is we 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 look at the person and we go, can this person run a fifty hundred million dollar problem and the company that is required to do that? Sometimes the company is a lot smaller. Sometimes the company is a lot bigger. But that's how we look at it. Basically, it comes down to maybe two things: you know, your ability to be resilient and your clarity. Are you very, very clear about what you need to do, and are you going to survive the bumps, the ups and downs that will inevitably happen? Some people give up when they hit a bump. How about clarity? How do you know if this person has clarity? Then it's surprisingly not. You know, at the extreme end of clarity, it's surprisingly not present in, in a lot of cases. In fact, I, I find that resilience is easier to find than, than clarity. Clarity is, if I ask you, what is your goal? You can relate that all the way to you know, your purpose in life, for example. Why has that got to do with anything, right? Why has your purpose in life got to do with the company you're building? Well, the company you're building is going to take an extreme amount of energy for you to build. If it's not linked to something that's meaningful to you, why would you do it? If it's just linked to money, there's other ways to make money, right? Mm. So that's maybe one aspect of it. Clarity on how you're going to make money, your business model. Mm. Can you talk to me about how you go from you know, uh, creating a product to actually making profits? What are the tiny, tiny little steps all along the way? What do you know? What don't you know? Because there, there, there's a whole bunch of things you don't know as a startup. Have you got processes, experiments, and efforts to go find those things you don't know. And it's easy, right? You can tell when you ask an entrepreneur, so how are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? And you see how, how clear they are on these things. Just as you there are resilience and clarity are the things you look out for, what are the kind of red flags then you kind of just say, no, I'm not going to move forward with this? Uh, with an entrepreneur or yeah. with... Maybe with, with a company, an, with a, with maybe it's the idea, maybe it's the team. You, usually it comes down to the team because the ideas tend to be appropriate if it's the right people thinking about it. They have, there's enough clarity. For example, market size, right? If, you, if, you, if you're going to get VC funding, you have to realize your market size needs to be at the minimum of a certain size. So, so you don't build a business with a total addressable market size that's too small for VCs to invest in. You know, things like that. If I see a business that's not appropriate for us to invest in, it's because the entrepreneurs are not appropriate for us to invest in. It doesn't mean they're not good. It means that they, are, they, are a certain, they have a certain perspective on what they're trying to do that might not be suitable for us. The red flags are mostly about resistance to ideas. I, I like to criticize. This is one negative part of my 
my personality helps. I like to point out all the problems with the business and see how the, the entrepreneur reacts. There, there should be some defensiveness if they are intellectually able to justify their positions and all that. That's great, right? So there must be some rigor to their thinking and they come, come back with these responses. That's fine. Uh, sometimes it's clear that they just didn't think about it or they disagree with it, but they don't know why. And it's interesting to see how they react, right? Whether they react in a very mature way and go, yeah, you know what? I don't know this. Or they get defensive. You have done some investments with the Mount Sale portfolio. I see, um, of course, the most interesting one was the recent investment in a company in Thailand called Play Labs. What do they do? They do games. Ah. They do casual games that are much more engaging than the, your, your you know, five-minute games. The rationale, the founders are good, or do they have a clear idea of what where they are going to go? Yes, both. And how about Ninja Man? Ninjas, same thing. Yeah, you know, if you get to know the founders we invest in, you, you see a theme that runs through them, which are the characteristics I, I pointed out to you. They are very humble. They are very open to ideas. They learn stuff very quickly. They push really, really hard. They're stubborn about not giving up, but they're not stubborn with their ideas only, right? Mm. They're they open to other people's ideas and they think very, very clearly about where they need to go. Mm. Numbers, you know, strategies, everything. Am I correct to say that when you look at companies, you don't also look at what is sexy and trendy at the same time? Like, for example, there's a lot of O2O, the Uber or X companies. You don't look at that. You look at more the concept. And where is it going, is it? It's both. I mean, some of the reasons why we don't get into the, the bigger sort of deals is just because we're a small fund, right? Mm. If you do e-commerce, you, you need like hundreds of millions of dollars to get to any type of scale. Right? We, we, our, our fund is, you know, a small little fund. So we, we, we won't have the staying power to drive some of the big e-commerce deals. The other... Uh, Aspects of it is how we look at this thing where we we call bits versus atoms, right? Yeah. We prefer businesses that are much more information focused than uh, stuff focused, whether it's employee services, fleets, or logistics fleets, for example, or even inventory. Right? We we prefer to stay in businesses that focus on using information as opposed to using all these other. Atoms. Atoms would mean hardware, basically. Hardware. People are things. atoms. Yeah. People, oh, people. are atoms. Oh, <laughs> yep, that's true. Their people is a very, uh, they are evolved beyond that. So recently you have moved to Indonesia to focus on investing in that ecosystem. What's the motivation behind? If you look at the GDP of ASEAN, Indonesia is about half of it. And it's probably growing faster than some of the areas in, in Southeast Asia. Even though it's very early days for the tech ecosystem here, we do realize that the tech ecosystem evolves very fast, as we saw in China. But we're pretty serious about building an ASEAN fund. So where do you go when half your market is in one one country, right? So we, we need a presence here, obviously. We, we are my partner Koi is in Singapore anyway. Is it because also Indonesia is now in the stage where like what is happening to China in the nineteen ninety seven, nineteen ninety eight, in the formation of like things like the BAT, you're gonna start seeing very similar things like that happening in the Indonesia market? And I mean, yeah. India yeah, is the right. same thing 15. now, right? Yeah, yeah. India is a, a bit more ahead, but yeah. yes, it's all very similar. It, but the difference is, uh, the huge, huge difference is the in terms of population, Indonesia is you know one-fifth the size of China or India. So the kind of scale of businesses that are going to happen, 
will not be there unless they figure out Southeast Asia. The companies figure out Southeast Asia. Do you foresee a point in time that there will be um, large companies in Indonesia that are tech-based, that are able, able to influence the surroundings, like maybe Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand, like the way maybe like a Baidu in China or a, or a, something like a transfer-wise in Europe? I would say I'm pretty country agnostic in the sense that I will take the talent where they come from. Mm. Uh, and the, the competitive advantage of countries, of nations, would be you know, where, where their where talent is. Right. With ASEAN happening, you know, ASEAN becoming more and more collaborative as an economic zone, it actually maybe we should start thinking about it in terms of what of one region, one business region, as opposed to you know a bunch of countries. Mm. Uh, and that's how how I'm looking at uh, our startups. Right, most of our startup have nationalities of five, ten different types of nationalities. Here lies the challenge of actually investing in the Southeast Asia market. But I guess we will talk about it more maybe in the future. So, Ping, here's my last question. Help mm -hmm. my audience. How do they find you? My email is ping at mungsil.com. And you can go to our website, take a look too. You have a Twitter account too, right? Uh, I have, but I, I'm not hyperactive on it. You know, occasionally uh, some stuff goes on. Okay, you can find me at uh, bilongcwr at bernalong.com or subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, A plus Asia. You could also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud and Acast. And please feel free to leave your comments and uh, give us a rating. Uh, once again, Peng, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to speak to us on the show. Thank you.